Over the past few years, our screens have flickered and our news feeds have reported with alarming repetitions the shootings of unarmed black men at the hands of police officers. Isn't it almost overwhelming to process these tragic events? I wonder if you can relate to me that I almost feel this sense of paralyzing every time I see another image, another clash upon the screen. I was thinking that these young men have moms and dads. Some of these young men have wives and children that they will never be able to eat another meal with again, that they will never be able to hug, to kiss, to say the words, I love you. The list in just a short span of only two years is staggering. Don Trey Hamilton, Eric Garner, John Crawford III, Michael Brown Jr., Azelle Ford, Dante Parker, Akai Gurley, Tamir Rice, Rumaine Brisbane, Jeremy Reed, Tony Robinson, Philip White, Eric Harris, Walter Scott, and Freddie Gray. As these unbelievable images flash across my screen again and again, I confess my own numbness to it all. As I began to think about my indifference to this human suffering, I wanted to write about it. I wanted to probe into the depths of my heart of why I have sort of grown more and more aloof, more and more apathetic with each growing image. I knew that something was not right about this growing apathy within me. And so I used this poem to search my feelings, to think deeply about what was going on. The question that haunted me while writing was, how can I call myself a Christian, a person of faith, if I don't care about the plight of others? A key to my thinking was the Bible verse Micah 6, 8. He has told you, O mortal, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God? So I want to do something really different that I've done in these podcasts. I want to play the poem for you right here. And then afterwards, I'll sort of process with you some other things that I've been learning since writing this poem. So here it is, White Apathy. The news flickers. Colors clash across screens. The officer pulls the trigger, and another black life is lost. In a blur of pixels, in a whir of missteps, I watch with dry eyes. The recurrence in an ascetic. I sleep with no sighs. Why is this suffering, the misery of race, 
harrowing to face. Leg irons on the middle passage, picking cotton from dawn to dusk. Separate bathrooms, drinking fountains, skeletons rattling, clamoring, battling from unnamed graves. A mother's cry, louder than lullabies. A father's despair stifles the sun's air. Power, pigmentation. I'm deaf to the sorrows of difference. Callousness traced through my white skin. Could I hear and feel if I powered off my screens? Became powerless and listened. So, since writing this poem, something has sort of opened up inside of me. This、uh, poem gave me a sense of freedom to think and to learn and to really listen about the problems of race in American history. And so, I just want to simply tell you about some of the things that I'm learning, and they're challenging and they're hard, but these are conversations that we need to have. And so, the first thing I've been learning about this, this thing called apathy, and I'm, I'm thinking about apathy here as the absence of passion, excitement, or emotion. Apathy at its very core is the absence of care, it can be defined as sort of not knowing. And not caring. I came across this scholar,、uh, this sociologist named Tyrone Foreman, who's written a number of important essays, and he specializes in intergroup prejudice and discrimination. He defines white apathy in this way indifference towards societal, racial, and ethnic inequality, and lack of engagement with race related social issues. At its core, what Dr. Foreman is saying is that white apathy is about not caring and not knowing. Dr. Foreman has written and researched extensively about this reality in America. Through his qualitative and quantitative research methods, he concludes that racial apathy, indifference towards racial and ethnic inequality, is a relatively new but expanding form of racial prejudice. When I read this, I thought, wow. And then it's sort of like I felt like this sense, this shiver going down my spine when I thought about that basically what Dr. Foreman is saying is that somehow racism is like a disease that with each passing generation morphs and changes. And in our particular moment in history, it's no longer about bus segregation and different bathrooms and different drinking fountains. But this prejudice stays with us. And, and now it's the, the way it's manifesting itself in this creation within us of apathy, the sense of not knowing what's going on with racial inequality and not caring enough to do anything about it. He continues his research findings by writing these words We further show that whites' systematic not knowing about racial inequality, what he calls white ignorance, Which was manifested in the reaction to the crisis after Hurricane Katrina is related to this racial indifference. Racial apathy and white ignorance, not caring and not knowing, are extensions of hegemonic color blind discourse, what he would say is not seeing race. 
This phenomenon serves as a pillar of contemporary racial inequality that have until now not received enough attention. So I was amazed that this sort of intuition, this hunch that I had that there was something going on inside of me also bears witness in the research that sociologists are doing in our world right now. And Dr. Foreman's research led me to another scholar of religion named Willie Jennings. Dr. Willie Jennings introduced me to the idea of whiteness. And I confess that when I heard this, when he was writing these essays that I read about whiteness, I didn't understand what he meant. I, I confess that inside of me, there was this reaction of like, why should I be ashamed of my own white skin? But then Dr. Jennings takes this long historical look, tracing this idea of whiteness and what happened from immigrants who came from Europe into American soil and how they crafted their own identity based on whiteness. And in an essay called Being Baptized, he writes, as explorers, merchants, soldiers, and missionaries entered new worlds and had new world peoples brought to the old world, they described who they were seeing in terms of being white, black, or being in between white and black. This was not the first time white and black marked identity in the old world, nor was this the only designation for new world people, but these racial designations took on new conceptual labor as they traveled with and inside the imaginative powers of Europeans in the new world. White, black, and everything else in between emerged as a way of looking at all flesh. This insight is powerful for us to recognize this idea of whiteness is important for all of us to have knowledge about and to think deeply about. What Dr. Jennings is saying is that the color of our skin, literally our pigmentation, became in this recent past how we labeled people. We began to label people not by their history and culture, such as Irish, Italian, South African, Peruvian, or Jewish, but by this simplistic rubric of color. Identification then with another person became weighted with this prejudice because power had a symbolic good and evil attached to it. Lighter skinned people were considered good, darker skinned people evil, and this duality continued dirty, clean, sinner, saint, reprobate, elect. This is amazing when we read this powerful history of what happened with whiteness on American soil. And then I came across this other scholar named Michael Eric Dyson, whose style is lively and memorable. And in a book called Tears We Cannot Stop, a sermon to white American, he says this so well and so clear. He says, but when your ancestors got to America, they endured a profound makeover all your polkas and pubs or pizzas and more got tossed into a crucible of race where European ethnicities got pulverized into whiteness. The whiteness is slapdash, pieced together from European identities at hand. But there is a pattern to it all. It helped the steady climb of European cultures to dominance over the long haul of history. Whiteness forged together among groups in reverse, breaking down, or at least to a degree, breaking up ethnicity, and then building up an identity that was cut off from the old tongue and connected to the new land. So groups that were often at each other's throats learned to team up in the new world around whiteness. The battle to become American 
force groups to cheat on their selves and romance new selves. That's how we went from being just Irish, just Italian, or just Polish, or just Jewish, to becoming white. I remember when I read this, the sense of aha in my soul, the way I began to stir, the way I began to thinking about how our world was put together based on these simple designations, based on this pigmentation and this color. This profound insight led me to remind myself that I am not white. I come from a long history of Irish and German ancestry. I come from a land and a people, from a history and a culture, from a different language than just English. But this insight also taught me that whiteness was used as a power tactic to keep people of darker skin complexion in subservient positions. It became an easy way of grafting our identity. And it seems to me that the history of the world is all about how we can't handle people who are different than us. And in this last 400 years of history, how we handle people who are different than us is to label them, to identify them by these simple rubrics of skin color. And this has devastating consequences for these minority groups, for our brothers and sisters of different colors than whiteness. And this way of constructing the world is still with us. That's what's so powerful about us. It lurks in our memory, imagination, and even within our body. And this way of thinking about identity, this way of thinking about being human has to change. Willie Jennings writes in another profound essay about the role of a scholar. He says these words, we must confront the principality of whiteness. And what he means by this is we have to confront this power and change it. We have to be people that understand this was a power tactic to keep some in powerful position and some in a weak position in culture. And this is what has caused all this hardship, all this pain. He writes this, we have now reached a point where we can name what has not been adequately named. And that is whiteness as a principality. For a myriad of historical reasons, we have not had the conceptual ability to name whiteness for what it is. Not a particular people, not a particular gender, not a particular nation, but an invitation, a becoming, a transformation, an accomplishment. It was an accomplishment sought after by immigrant group after immigrant group, coming to these shores, hoping to strip away their ethnic past and claim an American future. Before that, it was an accomplishment born of discovery, of European men who discovered their unchecked and unrestrained power over indigenous peoples to claim and rename and alter their worlds. So all this incredibly deep and thought-provoking material about whiteness and the building of a world led me back to my own white apathy. This made sense to me that somehow all of this weighted history that, that carries itself in my very body. And then I began to think that the antidote against apathy is action. That if we truly want to change, we have to flex our muscles of knowing and caring. And I remember that incredible verse in the book of James chapter 2, 14 through 16, that says, what good is it, my brothers and sisters, if you say you have faith, but do not have works, can faith save you? If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, 
Go in peace, keep warm, and eat your fill. And yet you do not supply their bodily needs. What is the good of that? So faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Many of you may say in response to all this, yeah, Dale, but each generation, each family, surely we're getting better on this racial problem. Surely there are more people being invited to the table and a new world is coming. And, and there's a part of that that is so good and so true. But what this idea of white apathy warns against is sort of thinking that things are just simplistically going better. The truth is it's going to take great effort and great energy. The truth is that this flexing of our muscles of knowing and caring has to happen in each family, in each life, in each generation in order for true sustainable change to come. I love the way Martin Luther King Jr. in 1963 called out this idea that each generation is always making steady progress. He says it stems from a tragic misconception of time, from the strangely irrational notion that there is something in the very flow of time that will inevitably cure all ills. So what do we do in response to this then? We must continue to flex our muscles of knowledge and care. But how? How can we practically begin to make the change that our world needs? In Michael Eric Dyson's last chapter, which he calls Benediction, in the book quoted above, he provides this helpful acronym that allows us to flex these muscles in distinctive ways and challenges us to not remain apathetic any longer. He uses this acronym called RESPONSIVE. And the R is reparation. Now this load, this word is loaded, loaded with a history and conversation in our culture, but he helpfully breaks this down. Given the inequality that has happened over history and time, he calls for reparation. He says, hire black folks at your office and pay them higher than you usually would. He says, pay the person who cuts your grass double. He says, give a deserving black student in your neighborhood a scholarship. And then he uses education for the E. He says, drink deeply from good books about black life and culture, the sermons of Martin Luther King Jr., any book by James Baldwin, David Garrow's exhaustive books about the civil rights, Cornell West, Michael Eric Dyson, I found incredibly helpful, uh, the rap and hip hop artist Propaganda, so thoughtful and engaged with culture, listen to it daily. And then he names school or sharing. He says, speak up, speak up to your white brothers and sisters. Tell them what you are learning. Talk about the concept of whiteness and why it matters. Societies are not strengthened by keeping one class on the top and one class on the bottom. And then participation. Participate in protests, in rallies, in local community meetings. Join movements that build up the most vulnerable in your city. And then he talks about befriending. How can you know the struggles of African-Americans if you don't take the time to cultivate relationships, to listen and to learn? And do this not for your own agenda, not for your own power, but do this just to befriend someone who's different from you, someone who's lived a very different history than you have. And then he says, speak up against the injustices. When you see something wrong, Speak, resist, don't be afraid to talk this out loud. And then he uses 
empathy, the last one of his. And he ends his incredible section with some words that will end this podcast. Whiteness must shed its posture of competence, its will to omniscience, its belief in its goodness and purity, and then walk a mile in the boots of blackness.